0: Greetings and welcome to a special episode of the 5 by. As Fall and the Delta variant ramp up, a lot of us are dealing with an end of summer and school starting, and I thought it would be a great time to revisit some educational games. Educational games is sort of a catch-all term, but most often used with respect to historical and war games where you're playing the noble military or the resistance. And while we've covered a few of those, I don't think that covers the breadth of modern board gaming. Games that can show you the civilian side of conflict. Games that can make you stretch your vocabulary. Show us science and health. And yes, show us conflict. I hope you enjoy five great segments from four great contributors and, well, me.
1: My college roommate Renata came to the United States in 1991 as an exchange student from Yugoslavia. When it came time to go home in the summer of 1992, her country was at war. The plane tickets her parents had purchased for her were for an airline that no longer existed. Her host family extended her visit and she ended up applying to college here. She came to university with the goal of becoming an architect so that she could rebuild all the precious landmarks in her beloved Sarajevo. I will never forget her love of country and extreme confusion as to how the Serbian, Croatian, and Bosnian kids that she grew up with could turn from kindred spirits into enemies in a few short months. This war of mine, designed by Mikal orash and Jakub Viznushk and artist Pavel Niziolek and published by Awaken Realms, brings to life the reality of civilians living in war through a complex, cooperative storytelling game for one to six players. You begin the game with three people squatting into house together with a few resources and a whole lot of rubble. They need to eat food and drink water, and you can only keep them on their feet for so many days before they collapse from fatigue. But push them you must. Every action is crucial if they don't watch the door or bravely face sniper fire to meet visitors, they may fail to survive. However, every missed meal, illness, or misery endured adds statuses that shorten the number of actions each worker has each day. This war of mine has the agonizing decision space and creative engine building that I love so much. Need rest? Build a bed. It seems so deceptively easy, but this game is anything but. The genius of this game is the house itself. Initially full of rubble to be removed and rooms to be explored, you start with a few worker placement spots built into the house itself. You can go outside to meet a visitor who might move in or offer something to trade. You can dream up new ideas to add to the most important pile of cards in the game, the fittings pile. This set of cards contains items you can build that add worker placement spots to the house. Things like rainwater collection, a furnace, or a radio. This increasing game space becomes agonizing when your wounded or hungry characters have fewer and fewer actions to use each day. After the day actions, you head into evening where you can go scavenging, leave people to guard the door, or let them sleep as a last resort. This is where the game asks you to push your luck and roll some dice. Thematically, this works as you are in an unpredictable and hostile environment where luck could be a life-or-death situation. This also plays out mechanically, as the type of game mechanics that you interact with at this point are diverse, and until you come across them unexplained. This brings up the most divisive aspect of this game. There is no traditional rulebook, just a journal with one page for setup, and a description of each phase of the game, and a couple details to sort out some of the complexity. Technically, it is enough to get you through a first play of the game, but I visited the BGG forums more than once for help. With over 200 rules threads on the game, it appears that a few other people struggled as well. Some will embrace this struggle as a thematic first-time experience of surviving war. Others want to know how to succeed before they even start. Many games have pathetic solo or two-player variants. This game has the opposite problem. I would call this a solo game that multiple people can play together. BGG recommends it for one to three players and rates it best at one. In a multiplayer game, players take turns making all decisions for the household during a phase. Other players can argue over a course of action, but the lead player makes all decisions and rolls all the dice. I can't imagine enjoying the downtime in a 4-6 to player game. This game will make you cry, but it will also remind you how lucky you are. Playing this game, I am often reminded of what a fine line there is between the life I take for granted and one in which I have to search for every drop of water and forage for every bite of food. That might make this more a work of art than game, but it is important. I would find a way to play it with someone you love, so that you can both experience the twists and turns that this game throws at you. I love this game and recommend it to you with all my heart. Until next time, you can find me at Cat Library on BGG, or Kybrarian on Twitter.
0: 1775 Rebellion is a game that I considered for a long time, but never pulled the trigger on. I just really had no justification. That is, until my oldest started studying the Revolution in school. And that was really all the pretext I needed, because now it's an educational expense. And while I've only played it once with my oldest, my youngest really enjoys the theme and rolling all the dice, though strategy isn't quite there yet. So it was totally worth it. In 1775 or you're playing the Continental Army and the Patriots against the British Army and Loyalists. And while I've played where there are multiple people handling each side, I found it works much faster with just two players, as while the rules are clear that the current active player can do whatever they want in-game negotiation among allies can really slow it down. Because if you and your ally both have units in an area, either one of you can move all or any of them on your turn as part of your movement phase. This is great if you've built up a joint army and one ally has the movement card that'll get them all where they need to go, while the other doesn't. But it's less than ideal when your ally takes your army into battle before you're ready. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In 1775 Rebellion, you start with the four armies placed in various spots up and down the colonies from Quebec to Georgia. Each turn, you place more reinforcements into cities and colonies where you control, and then play thematic event cards and movement cards while placing and moving the colored cubes on the board. No fancy minis here, though I do enjoy the art in this one quite a bit. It won't win any awards, but it's good and seems pretty period-appropriate. Events are few, but emphasize actual events like the French helping during the Siege of Savannah or special troop types for each army. The French help the Americans and the Hessians help the British. For movement and reinforcements, both sides are fairly evenly matched. It really comes down to strategy and dice rolls. The dice are the big difference between the main armies and those of the loyalists slash patriots. The main armies are more likely to hit when rolled, as are the mercenaries, and the non-professionals are more likely to run away but that's okay because you get to add them back in the next reinforcement phase. The other force on the board are the Native Americans, who join whomever recruits them by moving into their space. The game ends after the third round whenever either or both sides have played both of their truce movement cards, which are the best movement cards really, so it makes for a big final push. Once the game is over, whoever controls the most colonies is the winner. 1775, if you haven't gathered yet, is a top-view strategic simulation of how the revolution may have gone. You aren't in the trenches and the costs are even more extracted as you are literally pushing cubes around the board to represent different armies. And I'm okay with that 1,000 foot view. I want a grand overarching view that even Washington didn't have. I like the thematic touches that the events bring. Though if you want it to be even more thematic, you can add them in specific orders probably. But I'm a little mixed on the placement rules as if you manage to cut off an opponent to where they don't control any colonies, which is easier for the British to do to the Americans than vice versa, well, then they can never reinforce with more armies. I'm also a little mixed on the movement cards, as it stinks to not have the movement you need, but I suppose that's sometimes how war logistics works. But overall, we've enjoyed 1775 Rebellion and playing out the various scenarios. The base game actually comes with three scenarios, the short game, which is really pretty quick, the regular long game, and then the Siege of Quebec which is much more like Academy Games' 1812 title, as you can only use the upper half of the map and are fighting for control at the city level instead of the colony level. It is, in my experience, weighted towards the British, but I have found it gives a much more free-for-all feel. PGG also has rules for a more limited southern theater game that follows the same format but for the south. I personally enjoyed that version a little more as it felt a little more balanced to me. I should also mention that there's an iOS version of 1775 Rebellion, and for anyone who's tried their 1812 iOS game, I have found 1775 to be much smoother and easier to use. It also comes with all three in-the-box scenarios, but additionally has an in-app purchase for the Southern Theater that is also good, but the rules are different from what's on BGG. So that's 1775 Rebellion. I think Bo Beckett and Jeff Stahl have given us a pretty good command-center view of the Revolutionary War, I feel it works well as a teaching tool to show from a high level what was happening, some of the difficulties the Americans were facing, and maybe some insight into why it took 8 long years from start to finish, as it's extremely difficult to knock anyone out. It really is a lot of back and forth. This is a game for the patient. That said, as I'm not really a wargamer, 1775 Rebellion is likely going up until my youngest starts his own turn at the Revolutionary War in school. There's a limit to the scenarios you can try in each game, and frankly, after over a dozen plays of the physical copy and the iOS version, I'm ready for a break, but I did enjoy my plays enough that I'm interested in trying out the newest addition to the series, 1754 Conquest. So, if you have any further questions about 1775 Rebellion or anything else, you're more than welcome to reach out to me on Twitter, at Mike Risley.
2: Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about my word. A little disambiguation first. Uh, today we are discussing the 1972 deductive word game My Word, reissued in 2010 by what is now Eagle Griffin as What's My Word? Designed by former Games Magazine backgammon editor Jolie Quinton Cancel, My Word has become one of our most played word games this year and is possibly the best word game I've ever played. Now don't confuse this with the perfectly fine but not even remotely as good Reiner Knizia card game My Word from 2001. We love word games, but they're not always the best for two players. Uh, we play a lot of Taboo, a lot of Password, but at two, they're really more just cooperative activities. We can't play Scrabble anymore because I'm not a challenge for making to play against. Scrabble, like Chess or Bridge, has such a massively installed user base and following that it's really transcended its original parameters and become a subculture and lifestyle unto itself. Usually when that happens with the game, it ceases to be appealing for me, mostly because I can't and just won't devote enough time and energy toward it to get good. I'm bad at Boggle because the letters being upside down and sideways make me go cross-eyed and give me a headache. I like Scattergories and Outbursts too, but again, these are really more party games. Playable at two, but not really ideal. I found my word while searching for older two-player games I wasn't familiar with. Sometimes I'll just pick a category or a filter set on BoardGameGeek, sort by release date, and start from the end. Hobby gamers have a kind of tunnel vision about which games matter, which is a consequence of consumerism, capitalism, elitism, and a thirst for this constantly refreshed relevance, but that's an entirely other discussion to have some other time in some other place. So the unsustainable breakneck release cycle of games has just totally exhausted and disinterested me. I'm always on the lookout now for new-to-me old games that still hold up. And friends, my word holds up. Another pencil game, My Word was initially published by Gambit of Games as two packs of score sheets, which is fairly progressive, or at least minimalist, for 1972. There are no special dice, no timers, no unnecessary scoreboard. Just two people, two pencils, and two score pads. And in part, that's why my word is still genius almost 50 years later. It's a rare and beautiful thing to me when a game isn't just two-player, but only two-player. Publishers love to try and force multiplayer games to work at two and to adapt two-player games to work for more, and a lot of times the results are just garbage and extremist. Oh sure, I get it. You want to make money, so you appeal to the widest possible audience. Except that most things engineered to appeal to the widest possible audience are watery slop. My Word is unapologetically a two-player word deduction game. The overly simplistic description is Word Battleship, but it's more than that. Played over two rounds, you are asked to think of a word for each round, a six-letter word in the first and seven-letter word in the second. You write it all at the top of your sheet in a set of crossword-style boxes, and then take turns guessing shorter words in the columns underneath. If the word your opponent guesses contains letters in common with your secret word, they score points and give valuable information. I normally hate explaining rules, as you know, but to understand why my word is great, I'm going to have to a little bit, so my apologies in advance. So, because the secret word and the slots for guest words are laid out on grids, both the letters and their placement matter. Correct letters get you 250 points, but correct letters in the correct position get you 1,000 points. By process of elimination, you're trying to figure out what letters are and aren't in your opponent's secret word. The only feedback you get from them is the score of the word you've guessed. So if their secret word is forage, F-O-R-A-G-E, and you guessed high, H-I-G-H, your score would be 250 for that turn. The only thing you've learned is that one of the letters in the word you've guessed is present in the secret word, but not which letter or where it is. Playing MyWord is a little like picking a lock or running an elaborate con. You're testing, trying, tweaking, and twisting every turn to try to get the information you need before the time runs out. Now, there's no sand timer and no sense of dread or urgency in my word, but there are a limited number of turns before you have to render your final guess. Guess correctly and you'll get a 3,000 point bonus, but you don't have to guess correctly to win. Let's say you'd figured out that the last three letters of the word forage were A-G-E, but you still hadn't had time to get the other letters. You might still score fairly well if you could come up with the words containing the letters you do know in the correct places. it's always better if you can get the secret word, but the whole game doesn't hinge on it. You can buy a vintage copy off eBay for around $10 plus shipping. You can buy a copy of the Eagle Griffin What's My Word version off eBay for about $20, or the travel edition directly from EGG's website for about $15. There's also a great printable sheet over on BGG that I've laminated. It's full letter size, which I've found to be more enjoyable, and readable, none of us are getting any younger. You're going to want ultra-fine dry-erase markers for sure, though, the boxes aren't that big. We've played our copy around 30 times so far this year, and I don't see it wearing out anytime soon. So who should play my word? People who like deduction, but aren't really keen on social deduction. People who live in two-player households. People who love Word games. And people who have a decent inkjet printer or just print things at the office before anyone else comes in. I give my word 3,000 out of 3,000 points for correctly guessing the word iguana. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram, where I post about thrift stores, Star Trek, and weird bad TV shows you'll probably never watch, at Discount Compost.
3: When I first heard that Capstone Games was releasing a game on former President Nixon and the Watergate scandal, I immediately knew I had to play this game. Political history and journalism... Well, for those who know me in real life, this is exactly right in my wheelhouse. Watergate, published in 2019 and designed by Matthias Kramer, is a two-player, card-driven game that plays in about 30 to 60 minutes. It's similar to one of my absolute favorite games, Twilight Struggle, but it's much less punishing while still maintaining that historic tug-of-war feel of the scandal and in a fraction of the time. In Watergate, one player plays the side of a Washington Post editor trying to connect Nixon to his informers, while Nixon is trying to hang on to his presidency and not resign. Each player gets their own individual deck of cards to play with, and a small evidence board that contains a research track sits between the players. There are also cards that keep track of Nixon's and the newspaper's win conditions, as well as who gets the initiative for the round. The player with the initiative will draw five cards in that round and go first, whereas the other player only gets four cards. On your turn, you play one card, either for its value part or its action part. The value part shows a number that you can move either the initiative or momentum token toward you on the research track, or move an evidence token the same number of spaces as well. There are three random evidence tokens placed face-down on the research track at the start of the round, they get flipped face up when they move, and these tokens are important for the editor to connect Nixon to his informants on the board, or for Nixon to block those connections. The evidence board looks like a giant corkboard with a bunch of lines and pushpins printed on it. When either side claims an evidence token, either by placing it on the five spot on their side of the research track, or when the round ends, It's placed on the board face-up by the editor or face-down by Nixon. As the board fills up, it starts to look like one of those investigation boards you see often in the movies when someone is trying to uncover a conspiracy and connect all the dots. Also, instead of using the value part when you play a card, you can play the action portion. Sometimes these actions are one-time events that are so powerful that you then have to remove the card from the game. These cards are also how you get informants onto the board. Each informant has exactly two cards. Nixon has one, and the editor has one. If Nixon plays his card first, the informant is placed face down on the board, thereby closing off that pathway to victory for the editor. After all the cards are played, the round ends. Momentum and initiative tokens are awarded to the side they're sitting on, and evidence tokens are placed by their respective winners as well. The rounds continue until one side reaches their objective. Nixon manages to gain five momentum markers on his card, or the editor connects Nixon to two informants on the evidence board. Unlike other card-driven games, Watergate gives each side their own player deck to cycle from, and playing your cards does not trigger good things for your opponent. And while I've heard some criticism of not having a large deck to cycle through and people getting too familiar with all the cards, I think this is a benefit as when players get more familiar with the game, there's additional built-up tension bracing for that one particular card that your opponent still hasn't played that could totally mess with you. What I particularly love about this game is that you and your opponent can play a game and then switch sides and play another game immediately, and it still hasn't taken up your entire evening. It also has a small footprint that can easily be set up and taken down, The box is small, about the size of a personal pizza box, or for those who are familiar, a patchwork box. I love seeing all the historical figures brought together in this tug of war game that is very easy to get into. The rulebook and the text on the cards are well done, and there's even a lot of supplemental information about the scandal in the back of the rulebook. And if you're interested in more of the Watergate scandal, I'd highly recommend watching All the President's Men, a movie about the two journalists investigating the Watergate scandal whose reporting helped bring down the Nixon presidency. Gay journalism. And that's Watergate. Thanks, Capstone Games, for sending me a copy of this game. This is Meeple Lady for the 5-by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening.
4: Bye! The period game, as you might guess, is a game about periods. Not the punctuation kind, the menstruation kind. According to designers Daniela Gilsens and Ryan Murphy, the period game strives to turn a typically uneasy situation into a fun, positive learning experience. Back in my day, stigma-free, accurate information about periods was basically not available. I really want to see kids today have an easier time of learning about periods, and I love that the period game is there to provide that for them. The period game was self-published in 2019, and the first thing you notice about the game is the adorable 3D plastic model of ovaries in the middle of the board. Really, they're adorable. Go to the website, periodgame.com, there's a picture. The simple, colorfully designed board and cards also have visual appeal, and the player tokens are teeny little period products. Tampon, pad, panty liner. This game is cute. Gameplay is very simple, with only a small one-sheet of rules. To move, you twist one of the plastic ovaries until a colored marble pops out of the bottom. If the marble is clear, move forward one space. If the marble is red, jump to the next period space. If the marble is purple, oops, you leaked. Go to the nurse's office and lose a turn. While I love the use of marbles, I do wish the colors were better differentiated. The purple and red marbles look very similar to me. Even in bright light, we often had to hold them up to be sure which one we'd drawn. Whenever you land on a period space, you have to play a protection card from your hand. These have pictures of different types of period products. If you don't have a protection card, you also have to go to the nurse's office, which is a little area just outside each period space. Lose a turn is a hated mechanism with good reason, but since going to the nurse's office usually involves jumping ahead, I usually don't mind when it happens in the period game. Most other spaces on the board just let you draw a card, But there are also PMS spaces, which name a PMS symptom like headaches or acne. When you land there, you have to play a PMS card from your hand, which describes something you might do to alleviate PMS. These are tips like use a heating pad for cramps or talk to a friend if you're feeling bad. If you don't have a PMS card, you have to discard your hand and draw three new cards. And that's basically it. There are a few pink cards with special actions, like the extra undies card which lets you get out of the nurse's office without losing a turn. But for the most part, gameplay is draw a marble, move forward, whoever gets to the finish line first wins. I don't like to go through the rules of a game in detail during a review, but these rules are so simple that it's hard to describe the period game without doing so. I've played the period game with adults and with kids. The best game I've had was with a group of girls, one was 8 and the other two were 11. And beforehand, I thought the 8-year-old might be a little bored. I mean, periods aren't really a going concern yet when you're 8. And I hoped the 11-year-olds would be interested. Well, it didn't quite turn out like that. We made the mistake of playing in our friendly local game store, where there were other people. And as it was a game store, all those other people were men. The 11-year-olds were very embarrassed. No one was looking at us or anything. But one of the girls would literally hide under the table whenever anyone walked by. I did get the sense that they were enjoying the game, that at least some of the embarrassment was performative. It was like they needed to make this show of squirming and giggling in order to participate. They said later that they wanted to play it again, but at home. I should have known not to play with them in a public place. On the other hand, the eight-year-old, who I didn't think was going to be into the period game, was actually really into it. The gameplay was at her level, so she could enjoy it as a game, and she was interested in the topic. She asked lots of questions, including holding up the player token of a tiny little menstrual cup and asking me what it was for. Which, by the way, explaining what a menstrual cup is in the middle of a game store was something I never expected to be doing. So thank you, period game, for giving me a novel experience. In any case, the eight-year-old asked questions throughout the game about information on cards, about the tokens, and even about how my experience is related to information being presented in the game. She even got into playing the game in a thematic way. For example, there's a PMS space labeled Fatigue. She didn't know what that meant, and when her sister told her it means you're tired, she replied, then I should play this, and slapped down a card that said, get a good night's rest. It was awesome. Exactly the kind of interaction I was hoping we'd have with the period game. Learning and talking about periods and having fun. Now, would I sit down and play the period game with adults at a game night? I would not. The game is way too simple. There's essentially no strategy. Once the novelty of twisting the giant ovaries to get a marble wore off, it wouldn't hold up as a game for adults. But that's not what the period game is for. It's a teaching tool, and it's a good one. I'd play it again anytime with young people who are going to start having periods and need to learn more about it. Heck, I learned some things from the period game. And that's the period game. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you have any great stories about how to teach kids about periods. Then I really want to hear from you.
1: The 5by is a proud member of the Inside Voices network. You can find more episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify, and support the show on patreon.com/5bygames if you're feeling generous. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram under the handle 5 Games, or you can simply go to 5bygames.com to find links to all of our social media, as well as all of our episodes, contributor bios, and the official podcast store. Until next time, thanks for listening.